Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Well, in the aftermath of the preliminary final weekend, the Melbourne Football Club claimed a berth in the grand final for the first time in 21 years, and they'll be shooting for their first ever premiership since 1964. And it's hard to believe around this time, 25 years ago, the Melbourne Demons as an entity was certainly under threat with the potential for a proposed merger with the Hawthorne Football Club of all teams. And we know how successful Hawthorne have been in the years since. Also, this weekend has marked another anniversary of world significance that has been the 20th anniversary since the September 11 terrorist attacks. And each of these events have had a profound impact on the Hawthorne Football Club. And a man who was at the forefront in those particular respects is former Hawthorne president and a current member of the Hawthorne Football Club Hall of Fame, Ian Dicker. He's kindly joined us to discuss those particular events. Ian, thanks again for your time. Pleasure. It is a time to reflect. A lot of uh, serious things happened over that last 50 or so years, and we're living through the changes today. That's right. We're living through our own challenges today as well. It just seems to be the case that every era presents its own challenges in the world. But from a Hawthorne Football Club point of view, I know that's fairly insular in the grand scheme of things, but their very existence was under threat, as was, in many respects, the Melbourne Football Club as well back in 1996. Now, I understand you first heard about the whole issue back in August of 1996 when you were in the US and you received a fax. Can you tell us about when the proposed merger was first brought to your attention? Yes, well, I'd been to the Olympics in Atlanta and I went back to my home in the US after that and I got a fax from my secretary uh, with Mike Sheehan's article about the uh, merger or takeover by Melbourne and I had no idea before that, so I rang Ron Cook uh, and said, is anybody going to fight? Because I'll help fight if we're going to. His answer was to see Don Scott when I got back. I hadn't met Don. Um, and as, as a, a subsequent issue, um, staying with me was Peter Platten, who was the chairman of the Green Bay Packers. And when I told him of my facts, um, he said, well, let's sit down and have a bottle of whiskey because Green Bay's <laughs> been broke three times and we've been out of it. And, and, and at that stage, you could see a great Green Bay and they're still great. Well, that's right. And that's the thing. Uh, every club goes through a test of character and Hawford certainly had that test in 1996. Just in regards to your love of the football club, Ian, tell us about the genesis of that because it takes a lot to obviously provide assistance in that respect and you had a background in business so you could lend your expertise, but you've got to have a certain passion and that was certainly ignited amongst a lot of people in the ensuing weeks after August of 1996 when we had the meeting, the famous meeting at the Campbellwell Civic Centre, which I'll touch on very shortly. But tell us about the origins of your love of the Hawthorne Football Club. Well, um, I, I was an Adelaide 
boy and went to Sydney on the way to Melbourne in 1963. And so as a matter of interest, the first grand final I saw was that 1964 grand final, sitting in the stand watching Gablick do his magic. But coming to uh, Melbourne, my father-in-law was a, a very keen hawk. And once we got to the front door of his Melbourne house, he said, who do you back for? And I didn't back for anybody. He said, well, if you don't back for Hawthorne, you don't get a bed. So my enthusiasm quickly <laughs> increased. And Bar- uh, Barbara, who had been a hawk through her childhood and still was, was easy to support me. And so that started the story. I, I wasn't a strong Hawthorne supporter early because we were starting a young family. I was studying and uh, I spent my time in the garden on Saturdays mainly and took a while, but then then I really got interested. Fair enough too. Now, just in relation to the move from the US to Australia amongst all of this, so you received that fax, you rang Ron Cook to let him know you were prepared to support it anyway. Tell us about firstly arriving in Australia to all of this and I guess the attention surrounding the issue and were you shown any, I guess, evidence of the financial plight that the Hawks were in and obviously that prompted, or I guess the whole situation prompted you to think of a business plan for the Hawks going forward? Well, I was really very focused uh, on just recovering from my trip home and <laughs> then going to see Don Scott because there wasn't much time. And I, I, I was amazed with Scotty. He was he was the leader, the saviour of the club then and right through to the success. And he said, um, well, give us some money. And I said, what do you want? And he said, well, he, he was amazing, Scotty. He had done a deal with the board that... Um, they would resign if they lost the vote that they subsequently held on the 16th of September. Um, and if we raised, the non-merger group raised 800000 which was their uh, expected loss for the year 1996, so that, that, that the money they raised would go to cover that. That was an amazing deal that he'd done. And he said, I've raised 600000 And I said, OK, I'll give you the money, but where's your plan? He said, what are you talking about? I said, if we haven't got a plan to succeed as a business, it's a waste of time. We're putting good money after bad. And he said, okay, go right and develop a plan. And that, that was, it wasn't much longer than that. You know, Scotty, it was pretty brief. And uh, so <laughs> I, I went away, got four or five people from the club because I didn't know anything about football administration. And uh, we sat in the Athenaeum Club for a couple of weeks and we developed a plan. I put it to Ron Cook and Don Scott and those leaders who were taking the lead and they accepted the plan that we would make a profit in our first year. With Dermot uh, Barrett and they announced that publicly and that's how it all happened. It was pretty quick. I, I don't really remember it was two weeks or three weeks, but it was pretty quick. Speaking with former Hawthorne President Ian Dicker, just... In terms of the outside looking in at that point, were you surprised that Hawthorne were in such a predicament given they had that powerhouse era of the 1980s into the early 90s where they had so much success and yet they were still in this financial predicament? Or was that just the lay of the land with how football was run at that time? Because you might remember, I think in the late part of the 80s, a number of the clubs were broke and uh, the financial situation of a lot of teams wasn't as healthy then as it is today, I suppose. I, I had no idea that Hawthorne was in financial trouble. I, I really don't. I, I racked my brain some time after that. I've been running an international conference in March in Melbourne 
1996, and all my attention has been focused on if there was knowledge of it. I didn't have it. The, the, there must have been knowledge of it because Hawthorne pleaded with Melbourne for the merger, and and probably the most significant book there is on this time was uh, Ridley's Ian Ridley's book with his son John, The Urge to Merge, and that outlined all the merger issues, and it outlined that, uh, how much Hawthorne pleaded with them to participate. And what, just reflecting again on Melbourne 1964, Melbourne in 1996 were a long way ahead of most clubs. They were financially sound. They were going away at weekends with boards and management to plan for the long-term and the medium-term future. And along comes Hawthorne saying, can you merge? And that threw them off track. And I think it took, I mean, it divided the club. Mm. Uh, they voted for the merger, but that divided it bitterly. And uh, it, it hurt Ian Ridley strongly and sadly. And Melbourne didn't recover. And I think that potential merger was a real, one of the reasons why Melbourne hasn't been successful. And I, I'm glad to see they're in the final in a couple of weeks. Well, of course, Ian Tiger Ridley was a former player and he was part of that successful yep. era in the late 50s into the early 60s. I mean, to many, that might come as a bit of a surprise that they were willing to merge given, as you say, they were probably in a better financial position and there wasn't a real orchestrated... Oh, they were in a good position. That's the thing. There was they're no orchestrated position. need to do it. So why do you think there was this desire to do it? Was it a case of trying to expand their base or what was the reason? I think... I mean, I can only guess and, mm. and read Ian's book, but um, what Hawthorne was offering was Dunstall and Platten, so to speak, and the list and uh, the the venue as a training centre at Glen Ferry because Melbourne didn't have that. I mean, it was it was false uh, thinking, uh, but that's what Hawthorne put to Melbourne because uh, we found quickly that the Glen Ferry Stadium, our history was quite inadequate and we then worked progressively to get another better place um, and Dunstall and Platten were at the end of their career not at the start of their career so it was all false premise but I think that was the reasons they would have considered, I don't know I, I mean the other reason was they, the AFL was going to give them $6 million for the merger project as well so I, I guess they could see that as really building a very, very strong future and probably related to their boardroom and management thinking of how to build a stronger Melbourne club in, in the next five to ten years. I don't know. wasn't there. No, that's a fair point to make. We're speaking with former Hawthorne President Ian Dicker. Just in relation to that famous meeting, the merger meeting on September the 16th, it was announced actually that night that you would be the next president of the Hawthorne Football Club and you were subsequently elected in December. But take us back to the night, I think it was at the Camberwell Civic Centre from memory, where, I mean, yep. you had businessmen who were so passionate, they were yelling and screaming. Don Scott, of course, uh, had the jumper and ripped off the Velcro Hawk. Uh, revealing a Melbourne Guernsey, basically stating that Hawford's identity would be lost if the merger was to go ahead. Can you explain the emotion of that night? I've never seen emotion like it uh, ever before or since. But going back to it, some of the emotion reflected in one of the incidents or a couple of incidents that happened, I, just, I knew it would be emotional, never thinking it would be like this. And I got there early and I put my little leather case up on the stage on the table 
And then out comes a representative of the board saying, you can't put that there, that's for the boards. You've got to sit down the front. So we knew that it wasn't going to be easy. And then in, we were sitting in the front and Walter Jonah was talking with John Kennedy and said, please, John, say something to the public to, to encourage them to vote against the merger. And John got upset and left and walked out. It was incorrectly reported uh, and Ross um, Oakley incorrectly criticised Walter for what was said because he didn't hear it, I did. And uh, that was a a state of emotion at the time. And Walter Jonah, who I saw regularly, um, as he was dying, he said, please take this letter to John uh, because I want him to forgive me for, for the incident because it's never been properly reported. So I gave it to John and he accepted that was the case. So there was the man who, whose dying wish was related to that night. But it was incredible. And just another circumstance, in the, in the, another circumstance, in the week before I, I tried to get um, Hawthorne business people to come and see me and, I, and Morton Brown was bringing them in and trying to talk them into showing that our plan would work and get them to be on side. And they did. Uh, one of the fellows was Ray Wilson. and He had good arguments. We had a good debate. In the end, I said, Ray, I'm never going to convince you, but please don't ask any questions on the night because <laughs> they'll be hard to answer. And anyway, on the night, of course, he gets up and asks the question. And you remember the circumstance where Scotty said, sit down, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and, but that was the emotion and the circumstances on that night which were electric. It certainly was, and a number of people were involved, various stakeholders and people with backgrounds in all different types of industries. Tell us about Don Scott. I mean, he was a large figurehead in regards to Operation Payback. Uh, he's an interesting character. He was a commentator, I think, at that stage on Channel 7 and uh, a bit of an eccentric yep. character as well, it's fair to say. Tell us about your dealings with him, and obviously you had a collaboration there. Probably two different characters in many ways, but it seemed to work well. Well... Uh, I mean, you've got to give Don absolute credit for saving the club. Nobody, I don't think anybody else could have done it. He correctly gives thanks to the the past players like Michael Porter and Leon Rice who helped him, but he was the one who had two phones and continually ringing up people. Uh, He chased it. He went to the media. He was in the media and he went to the media and used the media. He was so active that he motivated Hawthorne supporters to be active. But he did another brilliant thing. He said to people that uh, send me in $100 with your name and address and that will go towards raising our 800000 and we'll form a trust with Phil Ryan and Ron Cook as the trustees and if we lose, we'll give you your money back. Well, of course we won, but what we had was a, a wonderful working list for our membership drive, which was the basis of our plan. and And also it had probably two or 300 volunteers already working for the club and they became the core for us to make a profit in our first year of 1997 of 311,000 was the fact that we had these volunteers who were doing things that we couldn't afford to do. We didn't have any money and, and the bank was chasing us to give us their money back. So what Don started then in winning the vote was the stepping stone for us being successful he was a difficult person in the board 
he was always honest but difficult. I found very difficult to work with him. But even though it was difficult, I'd always ask him if he wanted to come home and sleep the night at my place because he had a long drive. He never did, but I kept asking. And I didn't enjoy his end of the time when he uh, went against me and mm. I had offered him to the presidency privately. I went down to Geelong to a horse show and offered him that, but he didn't take it. I didn't enjoy that, but I, I never, ever go past the, the key issues is that he was the motivator in saving the club and he laid the groundwork for the basis for us rebuilding the club. 25 years, of course, since the proposed merger between Hawford and Melbourne, the Melbourne Footy Club, into the grand final for 2021. Tell us about your dialogue with key figures of the Melbourne Football Club at that time. Joseph Gutnick, of course, was considered the financial saviour at the time. He came in, and I know there was controversy in the five years afterwards when there was a lot of board unrest at Melbourne, particularly in 2001, which you touched on, and, and that obviously had its after effects as well, both on and off the field for the Melbourne Football Club. But tell us about your dealings with those at the club at the time and, and those who are also probably on your side in avoiding the merger. Well, my principal uh, person that I was communicating with at the time was Brian Dixon because he was the leader of the anti-merge for Melbourne. So he and I became friendly and remained friendly for a long time. I haven't seen him for quite a few years now, but we remained friendly for quite a long time because we were both trying to argue the same things. Um, and then only through being president and Joseph being president, I met Joseph and, and, uh, learned about him it was he was him and he did it his way and we did it our way um but we i think the difference was that the fact that melbourne voted for the merger and that ultimately joseph came in the club was split um and and hurt whereas our club was united we went we went forward from that time they they were battling themselves for for many years and I think that's the difference. And I know that after we won the, the anti-merger vote and on the thing proceeded, I went to every one of our directors except one and said, we're on opposite sides of the argument. We're both Hawthorne. Can you help? And generally speaking, they all did. So we were together, not against each other. And I think that was the difference at that time between Melbourne and Hawthorne. Absolutely. In terms of taking on the role as president, was it a tad overwhelming? Did you enjoy the opportunity? Was it unexpected in your eyes? Because you were there for quite a while afterwards and really it happened in, in such quick fashion because you'd just come from the US only a month or so before. No, it was unexpected and, and as a matter of interest, uh, when I got home the night of the 16th of September, Barbara had heard on the radio that <laughs> Cookie said I'd be the next president and I, she said what's this all about I said I didn't know anything about it he hadn't said anything to me so and the other thing was I didn't I doubted my ability to do it because I had had nothing to do with football administration and for eight weeks um, I got all I invited all the Hawthorne people I could down to Harvey's for breakfast on Saturdays trying to find someone who was a better person than me to lead it so I wasn't expecting it and I learnt a lot from those breakfasts, but I didn't get any volunteers. I think the other thing I'd say is that Barbara immediately, through her Hawthorne strength and through her basic nature, supported me immediately, never asked where I was going, how I was going. 
and let me get on with the job. I never had to worry about that. She was a fantastic support mm. because it was a, it became a seven day a week, um, sixteen hour a day sometimes job because we we were absolutely broke. I mean, we were so broke. I mean, people don't understand, but we did not pay final payments to the players for the 1996 season until April 1997. And and the players were fabulous because they didn't press us. They knew we didn't have any money and they didn't press us. And we had one man who would work with their urgent needs. And not only didn't they press us for payment, they helped us. They, we went out to shopping centres and schools and the players would come unpaid to do this and to raise our membership. The players deserve huge credit for what they did for the club in 96, 97, 98 and on. Well said. Uh, we're speaking with former Hawthorne President Ian Dicker. Just a last question on the merger issue. You look back now and, and see how far Melbourne have come. I suppose they've had their fair share of challenges over the last 25 years, both on and off the field. I know that you take a sense of pride, and rightly so, in the way that Hawthorne have developed since those dark days with the proposed merger, but is there a little element of pride that the Melbourne Football Club and the entity that it is and always has been as the Demons have been able to flourish. It's taken a while, but they're in the situation they are now where they're in a grand final, which for many supporters, uh, they didn't think they'd ever see the day where potentially they come into a grand final as favourites. Yes, I don't. It's all Melbourne, nothing to do with me. Mm. It's the depth of Melbourne that's got them to where they are, that they've hung on when it's been difficult and they're now rebuilt to a really strong club. That's full credit to to them and their constituents. Um, and the other thing is that, of course, in 1964, they were used to winning too. <laughs> they, had been, they had been so successful. So the Melbourne supporters of the time didn't think it would last. <laughs> it's just that I've read in the paper today, a 60-year-old lady who hadn't been, wasn't born, hasn't seen one. Uh, you forget how long it is, but the, the people who lived at the time had expected success. That's right. As a result of the great year they had during the 50s and the early 60s, where it seemed they won a premiership each year. Now, just in relation to anniversaries, Ian, I mentioned and flagged this at the start in regards to the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. As we're recording this, the US are marking uh, such a significant anniversary in its history, and it was a frightful day for those of us who will remember it. Tell us about where you were firstly at the time that you found out about the attacks. It would have happened, I think, late on a Tuesday night in the lead-up to Hawthorne's semi-final match against Port Adelaide that weekend. They had just defeat, defeated the Swans, the Hawks, uh, back in the elimination final. So a big week for the club. And it was probably put into perspective in many ways when you first heard about the attacks. Firstly, where were well, you when you found out? I, I, I was at home watching Mike Sheehan on TV and I switched the channel because I think there must have been a line underneath and there's the live photos of this plane. And I thought, that they're going for the building. And bang, in it goes. I mean, I couldn't believe my eyes. So I was right in the emotion of seeing it happen. But the second thing was that uh, Daniel Chick, who was a really good player of ours, mm. um, his brother-in-law was on the top in the top floors of the building, and Daniel talked to him in that time. He he subsequently did not live, mm. but so Daniel was emotionally involved, 
But in addition, most people have forgotten that ANSET collapsed Correct. and went into receivership that week. And, and Hawthorne dealt with ANSET, so we had no plane to get to Adelaide. So the AFL got us a cargo flight on the Thursday, and so we went over a day early um, to play court. And Adelaide is my home town. I had a day extra, so I went for a walk and I listened to a wonderful radio interview, which I think was between Luke Darcy and Tim Lane, because yep. Luke was in New York Correct. and he had been walking to the towers and it was a, such a, a uh, it's hard to say wonderful, but it was such a brilliant interview uh, with the emotion coming through, the questioning, the analysis, and I'm walking around my hometown past my old school in North Terrace and into Rose Park. I, I just loved, I remember that day so well, but I equally remember that on the uh, day we were not expected to beat Port Adelaide in Adelaide and Johnny Barker kicked the goal to win us the game and it was a fabulous end to the week. We had to go home in the freighter again, but <laughs> we didn't care at that stage. Speaking with former Hawthorne President Ian Dicker, it's one of the more underrated finals victories, I think, over the last 25 years, that one. Tell us about Daniel Chick, the individual that week. It must have been such a difficult period for him. I remember he actually kicked from memory the first goal of that final. Uh, I think he took a mark in the goal square and kicked the first goal of that particular semi-final. I remember he stood at the... When they were obviously standing there for the national anthem, he did an American-type salute where he had his... I guess, arm across his chest, uh, which is, I guess, the normal method or uh, the normal demeanour of American athletes when they stand for their own national anthem. How did you, as a president, did you have any dialogue with him just to ensure that he had a lot of support? Because it must have been such a terribly difficult time for him with family involved in the attacks. Yes. uh, um, I mean, I met with each of the players once a year about their future, and I had developed a good relationship with Daniel in that, category he was from a farming family and he said he he uh, just wanted to play football but he really knew a lot about farming I said well I'm on the wheat board I'll see if I can get you a job there Mm. and I did and he worked and they loved him at the wheat board and in the end he came to me as honestly as he was and said it's not fair for me to be there only a couple of days I said but they love what you're doing there and he said "I, I, I don't want to keep doing it so I had developed that sort of relationship with him. I went over to see his parents in Western Australia at the time to try to talk him and them out of him going back to West Coast. Failed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I still have a relationship with Daniel. I've helped him a bit through some difficult times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was always honest and tough and good. And I know my kids always were calling chicky, 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 chicky at the games. <laughs> That's right. He was such a fantastic player. Just in relation to the build-up amongst the club, and I know you can talk about it from an executive point of view, so many distractions with the September 11 attacks, with the fact that Ansett, as you said, went into liquidation and you had to take a cargo plane. Is it quite amazing looking back that you actually won that final against Port Adelaide, who had the home crowd behind them. They made the top four that year and had a lot of momentum coming in. Do you remember the elation after the game in the rooms in particular to win a final away from home in those circumstances, which were quite unique? I remember something before that. It was my deliberate practice of being in the race 
stand to welcome the players and the coaches as they came off win or lose. I learnt that from Alan Joyce, who who told me that he was always annoyed that people were there when they won and that were there with a loss. So I made up my mind I was always going to be in the same spot at the same time, win or lose. Mm. But I got cheeky that day having won and I walked out and threw my arms up to the Port Adelaide crowd. And then <laughs> I realised I was taking big risks. I quickly got back into the into the race. <laughs> but uh, no, Hawthorne was a really good club then, a really good team then, and they enjoyed the victory and they enjoyed the fight. Yeah, it was a sensational win. Well, Ian, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us to reflect on the significant, uh, momentous occasion, really, when you think about it in many ways of the proposed merger because ultimately it allowed the clubs to recover on their own two feet and uh, Melbourne are in the grand final in the coming couple of weeks. Uh, They could have easily been the Melbourne Hawks, which is quite remarkable when you think about it 25 years later. Thanks so much for your time and uh, I guess enjoy, in a way, marking the 25th anniversary because Hawthorne have achieved a lot since then, mainly due to figures such as yourself. It does show, though, that sport plays such an important uh, stimulator, motivator. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. ...to unify in our world in difficult times. Look at the Olympics in Japan, mm. look at the U.S. tennis, and now look at football while we're going through disastrous COVID and reflection of terrible times. Sport is a great part of our lives. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Lovely to have it. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.